This is a simplified version of the chart you have on, on page six. All right? Purdue <laughs> 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 version. Purdue <laughs> version is here, the IU version is here. Okay? So. Let's just, let's just dumb this down a little bit here. <laughs> Essentially, the idea here is that God created everything, okay? God created everything over here, all right? And see how kind of an artist I am? God created everything, and everything was hunky-dory over here, okay? Really hunky-dory. Right? Everybody was hunky-dory, okay? Adam, Eve, God, everybody, hunky-dory, okay? Very happy. All right? And then, for some reason, the two hunky-dory people down here who had it all set, you know, I mean, they had it set, I gotta tell you the story. <laughs> I gotta tell you the story. Have you heard the story about the, you heard the story about the three art? Have I told you the story about the three the three art uh, Should you tell me later? Tell me in front of the group. Three art uh, lovers. One was British and one was French and one was Russian. Have I told you this story? All right. You just got it. <laughs> <laughs> My memory's not good. So I saw so these, these art lovers were, were in uh, Italy and they were viewing the beautiful fresco, the Michelangelo of the creation, and viewing the part of the, just kind of the, the image of the Adam and Eve and the garden, and they were just admiring it. And as they're admiring it, the, the British fellow's looking at it, and he says, well, well, Jeff, look at this here. Everything is in order. You've got Adam and his lovely wife. You've got this beautiful garden, all the food. It's all beautiful, set up in order. You can see that this artist must have been British when he painted this. <laughs> and... Uh, a French guy just shakes his head. No. No, no. No, no. This is not British. You have, you have this lovely couple here. They're, they're naked. They're cherubic. They're full of love. They're dripping with passion for each other. This is a scene of love. Obviously, this is a French painting. A Frenchman painted this. And the Russian... Now, if he's heard all of this, he crosses his arms and he frowns. Yet. Yet. This is not British. This is not French, you see. They have no clothes. <laughs> they have no shelter. They have only one apple to eat. <laughs> They're being told of this paradise. <laughs> Obviously, this is Russia. <laughs> so, here in Russia, everything was perfect, but for some reason, these guys decided that they could do things better and knew better than God did under the influence of another guy who we have not drawn. 
who was talking to them. And he said that God lied to you, and you shouldn't believe him. Everything's going to go badly for you if you don't believe me instead of him. They did, and at that point, everything literally went to hell. Okay? That's the fall. And everything that has happened from that spot in history has been to recover us from that failure. Okay? Everything. So what we are dealing with here is the path from creation to recreation. Okay? That's the the Bible storyline. Everything we're reading in the Bible is getting us back to where we're supposed to be. Okay? Redemption. That's what that's called. Different ideas about how that redemption is going to happen. But in any case, when we read the New Testament, we are reading it a historical document that assumes we understand this salvation historical situation. Okay? That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that was promised up to that point in terms of how this redemption is going to happen. And that everything that has happened from that time has been the walking out and working out of that redemptive beginning here. So you saw in the first chapter or second chapter of your, your uh, Shriner book that he talked about already and not yet. Okay, the idea of, of it being inaugurated but not consummated. Okay, that's what happened here. Redemption, the final fix of this problem... <coughs> was started here, inaugurated, already here. We're in a pattern, in a path of moving now to a place where when Jesus comes back again, and we go through this process of final redemption, we will eventually end up back where we should have been when these guys messed up in the garden. That's the storyline of the Bible. Okay? So if I were to tell my Albanian or my Turkish friend or whoever I was talking to, I might want to start here. The world's a mess. You know? A mess. And it doesn't take very much for you to recognize that it's a mess. If you live in Albania for the last 75 years, you know it's a mess. And you have to begin to ask the question, why is it a mess? And how do we fix it? That's what is going on here when we start to read the New Testament. Okay? We have a recognition that we are, as Joshua recognized immediately, that we didn't, this isn't the beginning. <laughs> okay? That we're in the middle here somewhere. Some, a whole bunch of stuff has already happened. Okay? And what the Bible calls that whole bunch of stuff is covenant. Okay? <coughs> And we are living now in a new one. Okay? Another word for testament. Testament is a word that comes out of the Latin word for covenant, basically. Right? So we had an old covenant over here, and we now have a new covenant over here. That's the basic historical premise of the New Testament. Okay, let's look through that list quick. Very quickly, and if we were to read through these passages that are on the left, Romans 1, Mark 1, we can look, we can just very quickly look at Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he calls it. 
Okay? If you look at John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, He was in the beginning, all things were made through Him. Okay? And so we see from the beginning, the Word of God begins to talk about itself as an account of this story. Okay, it's a fulfillment of God's words and promises. It says that it's the gospel. It says, Luke says, that he has written an eyewitness account. Okay, Luke says that just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, okay, it seemed good, having followed all these things, to write them down in an orderly account for you, Theophilus. Okay, so he, the New Testament calls itself an orderly account, a historical account, something that's true. It calls itself the revelation of the Word of God in John. It calls itself a call to faith in Jesus. That's what John says in John chapter 20, right? I have written these things to you so that you might what? Believe. believe. So that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay? And have life in His name. Alright? The New Testament assumes and calls itself instruction for the church. Okay, across Paul's letters, the assumption is what he's telling the churches they need to do. Alright? He calls it, it calls itself a testimony about Jesus' character and his role. Several places it calls itself a word from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit said through the prophet David. You see that throughout the New Testament. It calls itself the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. It calls itself a word of prophecy. It calls itself the teaching and the words of Jesus, which are recorded and recorded faithfully, those that are recorded. It takes itself very seriously. At the, book, at the end of the book of Revelation, it warns those who listen and read and hear the prophecy. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described here. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life, which is described in this book. Okay? The Bible takes itself very seriously as truth, revelation, instruction, to be obeyed, to be believed, leading you to Jesus. All right? So I want to say that our understanding of the New Testament has two basic aspects. Okay? We understand the New Testament, as a, first of all, as a document. And as a document, as a written document, it has a context. All right? It didn't happen in a vacuum, but it happened in a historical context. It's a document that has authors okay, who lived real lives in real places and were either eyewitnesses or knew people who were eyewitnesses of the events that happened. Those authors had gifts and passions. They had roles and functions in the church. And through those, they wrote what they wrote. Okay? The document then has a culture. It was written into a particular culture. Okay? A particular culture of the middle part of the first century, of the first millennium. All right? Not our culture. Not the culture of the Reformation. Not the culture of the Middle Ages. It was written into the culture of the first century. Okay? That's going to color how we read it and how we think about it. All right? It also is a document that had specific circumstances about how it was written, how it was put together, how the various parts of it came together, how long it took that to happen. As a document, 
It was assembled by somebody over the course of time. All right? Those are all real historical aspects of the New Testament as a document. And so sometimes when we study and understand the New Testament, we understand it in those ways. We make sure that we understand its documentness. Can I use that as a word? Okay. Yeah. I'm Purdue, you know. Purdue, we make up words sometimes. So. Engineering words. Okay, but also, not just a document, it's also something more than that. Okay? What's the difference between between this document and this one? All right? This one, now Wes is going to answer my question too fast here, so. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the answer. This document and this document share some things, right? They're both written down. They're both written in English. Okay? They're both written by an author. They both have a context. They were both written in specific circumstances. And they were written for the people who are going to read them for specific reasons, right? All those things these two books share. There's something this book does not share with this book, Wes. I mean, it's living. All right, it's living in what way? It's the very word of God. How is it so? It's the very breath of God. Exactly. From whom? From God. How did he do that? He breathed. With what? Look at breath. And that's called? Second Timothy 3.16. That's called the Spirit of God, right? All right. The Spirit of God, which is the same word that we take inspire from, all right? The Spirit of God, actually, then, we know, because the Bible says as much about itself. Not only does it say that it is all those other things, it also says that it was breathed out by God. Breathed out by God through the inspiration and work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's our faith. And so, not only is it a document, but it's also a revelation. And it, as a revelation, then, we understand that it is Scripture... If it's scripture, that means we have to do something about it. All right? We can't ignore it. If we ignore it to our peril. All right? It's not a document that can be ignored, treated improperly, treated as the author didn't intend it to be treated. As scripture, it is to be honored according to the way God intends it to be honored. Okay? So it has that authority base. It's scripture. As revelation, we also know, therefore, that it tells us about God. Right? That it is theology. And within theology, we have Christology and pneumatology and ecclesiology and all the other ologies which tell us about God and how he works with his people and how he works in the world. Okay? As revelation, it also tells us how to interact with God. All right? If Jesus Christ were to appear here, now he's here by his Spirit. His presence, he's everywhere, we know that. But if Jesus Christ were in bodily form to come and appear, standing right in front of Wes right now, like he did in Revelation chapter 1, and just boom, what would be our immediate posture? Face down, forehead on the ground, right? <laughs> he would not have any choice. Why? His glory, his power, his preeminence, his purity, his otherness from us would immediately elicit our worship. That's who he is. So our fundamental relating with God is through worship. 
That's our fundamental relationship with God. And we talked earlier about friendship with God, which is possible because we're worshipers of God first. Alright? The scriptures as revelation tell us how to do that. Alright? They tell us how to do it, why to do it, where to do it. Okay? They are the way we are told to relate to God. We can't relate to God in any way that is not in this book. And we can only relate to God in ways that are in this book. Right? That's because this is revelation. God has revealed how to relate to him. And then lastly, as a revelation, it tells us how to live with each other. It tells us how to behave. Ethics is that category. What do we do when someone treats us in a way we don't like? In the Old Testament, you cut their head off. In the New Testament, you love them to death. Right? You do that in the Old Testament, too. I'm sorry, that's a caricature. But the, I'm just, every once in a while, I've got to get on Dennis, you know. He's so excited. You ever seen that? You know, you were here. I watched, I watched him preach. The first time I watched him preach, I couldn't really believe how much energy the guy has. He's not that tall. I mean, he's a little shorter than me, I think. He's somewhere in here. But he, uh, he preaches, and he's behind this big pulpit, and the, the guy never got up off the balls of his feet like this. Never got off the balls of his feet the entire time he was preaching. I can't even do that that way. <laughs> the guy was so excited about whatever Old Testament thing he was preaching about that he never got up off the balls of his feet. I thought, dude, I need to take classes from that guy. <laughs> I'm not on the balls of my feet, am I? It would be overwhelming for you. <laughs> so, Scripture needs to be looked at. We're going to look at Scripture, and you're going to look at Scripture. As you look at the New Testament, you're going to handle it as a document, understanding its context, its authors, its circumstances, how it got here. All those things determine some meaning for us. At the same time, you're not going to treat it like any other book. You're going to say, but I need to bow down and worship the God who gave me this book. I need to recognize that the, the, the one who wrote the book lives inside me and who calls me to account for what's here. All right? So you can't treat it like any other book. Okay? So that's what is the New Testament. I would say ultimately, the second thing here, the, old, the New Testament is a missionary document. Every book in the New Testament was written into a missionary situation for the purposes of telling people who is Jesus and for calling them to reconciliation with God through him. Every book in the New Testament has that ultimate purpose. Now, some of them were written in a different circumstances, solving problems in the church, answering questions about issues. But ultimately, they were all written into a missionary circumstance. A circumstance where people had become believers in Jesus Christ through the gospel and they needed to know how to relate to God and relate to each other. Okay? Proclaim the gospel into historical reality. They, essentially, the New Testament answers the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What should I do about that? And what if I don't do it? Okay? Ultimately, that's where we're going. So when you think about, when you're reading aspects, or when you're doing your, your, your daily reading in the New Testament, and you're preparing a Bible study for Sunday school, or your small group, or whatever, always bring those things, the big picture here to mind, before you try to decide what this means. Make sure you understand where it is, how it got there. We'll talk more about that. Okay. 
That means then, following down, that New Testament theology is ultimately a missionary theology. Meaning that Jesus, in his role as Savior and Lord, is calling you into a relationship with him, with God through him. Okay? So you can read through um, those issues that Marshall raises there. But essentially, I mean, as much as the New Testament talks to the church, as much as it talks about Christ, as much as it talks about evangelism, those things are not the primary issues. Okay? The primary issues for the New Testament are issues of mission. All right, so that brings us to this last thing, and I'm moving quickly because I want to get to the second thing we're going to talk about tonight. We, we come to our study of the New Testament with these affirmations, okay, with these assumptions. These are not assumed by everybody, and they're certainly not assumed by the scholarly world that you live in. Okay? But these are what we assume. God has revealed himself. That he's spoken into history. That he wrote it, he told people things, they wrote them down, and we have them as scripture. And it's to our eternal benefit to listen and submit to what he says. We affirm as believers that scripture is true, that it's accurate, it doesn't contradict itself, and that you can understand it when you read it. It is not a mysterious document that requires specialized knowledge, or hugging a tree, or digging up some plates, or having a vision to understand. A believer in Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, can understand the Bible. Okay? We affirm that. Scripture is consistent with God's character. As much as we might not understand why something happened in the Bible, my goodness, 185,000 Assyrians were killed in one day, that's a mess. And I'm glad I didn't have to bury all those things. But... Because scripture is never inconsistent with God's character. Okay? It is always telling us something about who God is, and it's true. And then lastly, and this maybe is the most critical thing about all of this, is that our assumption and affirmation is that you can only read, believe, and obey scripture by faith. Okay? People will say it's a circular argument. The Bible says it's true, and so it must be true. Well, that's circular. Yeah, okay. In pure logic, I would agree. Because the Bible says it's true, it must be true. How is that true? It's true because of my faith. Because I've had a living encounter. That doesn't mean my experience is more important than Scripture, but it means my experience is real. Okay? That ex- that, that existentially, I have a, a real relationship with the author of this book, and by that faith, I know that when he says something, it's true. So our assumption is that we will come to Scripture by faith, which is why I said at the beginning, one of the most helpful exercises that you can practice, that I can practice, is to pray specifically. Read broadly and pray specifically. You pray specifically the piece of scripture, you bring your faith to bear in that place, and the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to say, okay, here's what I want you to do about that. Okay? Questions, comments? That was just a big kind of run through. I wanted to finish that. Questions, comments? Yes. 
oftentimes, I, I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who feels this way, but oftentimes when I'm reading the New Testament, I feel like it's really repetitive. And so, because a lot of the same concepts keep coming up, like Christ or sin or things like that. So, how do we avoid doing that? We'll talk about this a little more tomorrow, but essentially, I'll, I'll give away the store now in terms of whenever I read a passage of scripture, I'm going to ask you two questions. I can write a sermon if I can get these two questions right. Okay? One is, what is this passage of scripture telling me about God? That's not always going to be the same thing. In fact, it's not often because there is an infinite amount of of knowledge and um, engagement that we can have with an infinite God. So scripture by being revelation is always going to present to us something about God that we need to know. Alright? And most of the time not most of the time, sometimes that will be unique and sometimes that will match something else. But that's part of the digging process. Okay? But the second question, which gets more at the concern you have, is why did the Holy Spirit put this here? Why did the Holy Spirit put this here for them, the original readers? And why did the Holy Spirit put this here for me, or for us, or for the ones that I'm going to present or teach or preach to? You get the answers to those two questions right, and you will get the intention of the author. Okay? And the intention of the author is going to be different for each one of the books. For each one of the places you're reading. He's got something specific he's trying to bring across within the context of that passage you're reading. Yes, it's repetitive. We have four Gospels that essentially tell the same story. Why do I need four? Well, we'll talk about that. But Paul's letters often address similar subjects. Ephesians and Colossians are nearly identical, for example. And Second Peter and Jude are nearly identical. Why similar material? Well, we'll talk about that. But in each case, if I can answer those two questions, I'm going to begin to get the answer. Part of the other reason, too, is, is that there's a unity, and we'll talk about that tomorrow, there's a unity across the New Testament in these themes. All right, any other? Should we move along? Everybody happy? Oh yeah. Are we going too fast, too slow? Smart table back there, are you are you okay? Are we Okay? We ought to refer to them know it all. I keep the smart table awake, we're doing fine. Okay. Alright. Question number two. First question. What is the New Testament? The New Testament is a missionary document of revelatory nature that is designed to answer the question who is Jesus and what should you do about him? Okay? Is that a good answer? You like that answer? You did the right answer? Okay. <laughs> keep, uh, keep looking over at Dan because if he starts to, you know, shake his head, I know we got problems. <laughs> He's the Berean, I know, the, the room here, so. Okay, second question then is if that's what the New Testament is, then does that matter? Okay, so what? Is the New Testament actually relevant? Do I need a missionary document that tells me about Jesus? 
There's a whole bunch of the people in the world who would answer that question with an affirming no, a resounding no, right? No, I do not need a New Testament. Please do not give me one, or show me one, or read one to me. <laughs> so is the New Testament relevant? Well, let's ask this first question, okay? First question on there. What if we didn't have the New Testament? Be your Albanian, or just imagine a world where you didn't have a New Testament. I haven't picked on this one very much. That's because you don't have a name. Oh, you covered up your name. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what your privilege. You have to remember it now. <laughs> Greg, what if you didn't have a New Testament? Okay. <laughs> what if there wasn't a New Testament? How would your world be different? How, for example, how would it be different? How would your world be different? In the most obvious way. Okay. Okay, you live under, you'd be living under the law. We're going to make the assumption we have the Old Testament, but not the New Testament. Okay? Yes, that's what Greg is doing. So we'll live under the law, all right? John? What if we didn't have the New Testament? How would your life be different? Assuming if we didn't have the New Testament, we wouldn't have Jesus either, I'd still be lost. There you go. Well, at least you wouldn't know about him, right? Well, no, I wouldn't know about it, but I'd still be lost. <laughs> <laughs> right, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have any report of Jesus, right? Christine, what would you what if we didn't have, what if we didn't have the New Testament? Well, you might if you had the Old Testament, because they talk a fair bit about sin in the Old Testament. Right. 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 So, if all you had was the Old Testament and you didn't have the New Testament, you'd know a lot about sin, right? Because the Bible, the whole Old Testament is about sin, right? But all the way you get things wrong. You get things wrong, and then you go kill an animal. And then you get things wrong again, and you go kill some more animals. And then once a year you kill lots of animals. Can you imagine hundreds of thousands of sheep, goats, bulls? Can you imagine the amount of blood... Can you imagine what Jerusalem was to smell like on Passover? Can you even imagine what that would smell like? If you suddenly could click your fingers and appear in uh, you know, 10 AD in the temple on Passover, you'd immediately vomit, first of all, from the smell of the dead animals. It was, it was catastrophic, the scene. How did they manage that? Can you, you can't. Imagine how they dealt with that. I mean, it took them five seconds apiece. It was still taking a little They had hundreds of priests. It was a slaughterhouse. It was a bloodbath. There was blood everywhere. It smelled like dead animals. I mean, can you imagine that scene? Alright? And you had to go up there at least, what, three times a year if you were a good Jew? I think that must have been overwhelming. Their sense of sin was was very clear, I think. <laughs> but no New Testament. 
Assuming everybody is Jewish, right? You're a Gentile, so you're out of the picture. Yeah, that's Well, if you're a Gentile, you really are um, out of the picture, right? I'm going to say something else, but. Well, you're out of the picture, right? If you're a Gentile and you don't have a New Testament, there's no hope for you. You can't even kill an animal, right? There's nothing. They didn't know they would be killed. <laughs> you'd be blind in the dark. You'd have no access to Jesus because you wouldn't know about him. <coughs> what, else, what else would be a problem, Doc? What if you didn't have a New Testament? Well, yeah, you would have a very deep concept of sin, but you would have, if you knew the Old Testament, if you were a Gentile, you'd just be, who knows what you'd be running around doing. All the things they do now, I guess. Um, but you would have no sense of any recover of any recovery, right? The world would be just going on in its chaos. Wasn't the Old Testament Jesus concealed? I mean, he was there as... You, you can read it and understand it. Right. Yeah. But you would be like someone living in that period. No concept of, of the fulfillment. Now, if you're a Jew and you knew your Bible, you might have some hope that God was going to do something. All right? There was an anticipation in the Scriptures. It was vague in some ways. It wasn't specific. In some ways it was, but generally not sure how God was going to work this out. But your lives would be utterly different than they are now, right? Without a New Testament. No knowledge of Jesus, no knowledge of salvation, no knowledge of, of grace. No cross. No access to God. No forgiveness. No real forgiveness. God blew it. Is what you're saying? Yeah. If you didn't have a New Testament, God blew it. He did. Yeah. Or he just forgot. Forgot. Hasn't yeah. got to it yet. Yeah. If this never happened, or even if this did happen, but he never told you, <laughs> because without the New Testament, all of this could have happened. But you wouldn't be able to access it, right? In the postmodern world that we live in, that's how they live. I took some of this out of an article from Don Carson, Dangers and Delights of Postmodernism. I can give you the link for that article if you want it. But a very good description of what it means, what, what it means to be postmodern in a helpful way, not a, not a uh, running hang the witches kind of way. But in there, he lists these various issues. These are really listed. He just kind of describes the world, and I just pulled out these words. But in the world, of, of, in the postmodern world that we live in, which wasn't, isn't really all that much different from the first century. In fact, what's interesting is one of the points that Don Carson makes is that we live in a period in history that is the most like 
the New Testament world that has been since that time. Which tells us something about evangelism and missions and how we use the Bible, but in any case. Look at the world, it's skeptical. Okay? Either in terms of, well, we're not sure whether there's a God or there isn't a God, or if there is, he doesn't have anything to do with me. A world that is autonomous in nature. Okay? Everything is about I or we. There's no sense of reaching across, there's no sense of reaching up. There's a sense in which, even when I read something, if I even read my Bible or read anything, it's about what I think it's about. How it affects my life. Okay? What my response to it is. How it affects my family. Everything is very autonomous in nature. Right? Subjective. Now, subjective essentially means that, that uh, there's no center. There's no truth center or is a very loose truth center. Uh, absolute truth is out the window. Everything is a sense of, well, what you think is okay, you know, is okay for you, and what I think is okay is okay for me. So, for example, you know, in that world, you could walk over to the book table and you could say, well, these books say that they're from the library of John D. Erickson, but that's in his world. In John D. Erickson's world, these books belong to him. But in my world, they actually belong to me. And so I can take them home and read them and give them away or do whatever I want with them because in my world, they're mine. Now, I'm sorry that in your world, they, you think they're yours, but in my world, they're mine, and so I like them, and so I'm going to take them. That's a very extreme example, but that's, that's the thought pattern of a subjectivist. So you'll hear things like, well, it's good that you have this religion. I'm glad it's helpful for you. And um, if you're at peace with that, and you don't come into my home with a machete, and that's good. I'm glad for you that you're whatever it is you have, helps you. For me, no. I suck on leaves. And that <laughs> helps me. Epistemologically and morally. Epistemologically means how we think about truth. Okay? Uh, where we get truth from. Where we get knowledge from. Okay? A subjectivist is, is again, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Morally, I can take a book because it's okay for me to do that. It might not be okay to you, but in my world it's okay, so I'm going to do it. Pluralistic means whatever goes, whatever you believe is okay. Ideas, um, religions, ethics, um, all over the map. Okay, no one religion is better than another. There's no one way to heaven. All paths lead to God, or all paths lead wherever you want them to go. Okay, pluralistic. Natural, there's no God, there's no supernatural. Tolerance, everybody's thoughts or opinions are as good as the other unless you disagree with me. And then yours aren't as good as mine. But everybody supposedly at equal value unless you're a Christian, then you're wrong. Right? Um, reject judgment unless I don't like it. But reject judgment. You're not allowed to judge me you're not allowed to see yourself as better than me, etc. Okay, that's the world we live in. Now, that's not, that's, po that's postmodern because it's been stretched to those limits. I think those were probably, there were some things about that where they were in the modern world, too, especially the, 
rejection of supernaturalism, etc. But in any case, the New Testament is relevant. And let me just turn with you to Hebrews, just one example of scripture, Hebrews chapter 10. Just turn with me there. Let's just see, how does the Bible answer these claims? Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the day, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, you read a passage like that, that you can draw near to God confidently because of the blood of one man. The thousands of sacrifices are over because one blood, one man's blood, allows you to now come into the presence of God. You have a new and living way through him. All right? He says, come in faith, be clean, be cleansed, be pure. All right? Have hope. Be, know that God is faithful. Live together in a way that's loving and, and full of good works. And meet together and be in fellowship with another and encourage one another and know that the, the next thing that's going to happen in history is Jesus is going to come back. That's one script, one example from the New Testament. I just give you that. And take that and apply it to this postmodern world that we live in. And I just wrote some of my thoughts there. In this new and living way that Jesus calls us to, he says, out of skepticism, I call you out of skepticism to a faith in what is, what is real. I mean, if nothing else, the New Testament claims that it's true and that it is speaking historically, that it's saying what I'm reporting to you actually happened. This is real. And there's no reason to be skeptical about it. There's, there, there's no call, there's, there's nothing about this that says, be skeptical. If nothing else that says, no, believe. The new and living way, Jesus calls you out of autonomy, out of your self-I-me focus to a place where you're dependent on God. That's one of the, the uh, critical issues even of the Old Testament prophets, isn't it? Is, is that we have become independent of God. We have gone our own way. You know, in Romans, when Paul opens the book of Romans, the, the issue is what? That all of us have gone astray, each to his own way. And the, the New Testament calls us out of that autonomy to a place of dependence on God. Out of subjectivism that says, whatever, your truth, my truth, no truth. Out of that place and says, no, you can know what's true. 
The New Testament over and over and over and over affirms Jesus is what's true. The way, the truth, and the life he calls himself. So take yourself to that place. He calls the people who live in a place of pluralism, of idolatry, to worship God. Worship him alone. The New Testament calls you out of naturalism and says, no, there's a spirit, a live, living spirit who can fill you. We'll talk about the idea that, that throughout the Bible we see the three ways the spirit operates in, with, and, uh, in, with, and upon his people. And that's always been the case. And Jesus calls us from this testament out of a tolerance to a place where we speak truth in love. I tell my students in my classes that they're allowed to keep their phones on if they'd like, but I get to answer them. <laughs> All right, does that make sense? So when I talk about the idea of the relevance of the New Testament, I think what I'm saying is it speaks specifically into those places. Where else do you think the New Testament speaks? This is my idea of why I think the New Testament is relevant. Why is it, why is it relevant to you? Why does it matter? Yes. Yes, there's a that sense of uh, him revealing himself and our responding. Um, that is pervasive through scripture. It's a, there's a relational element there. Of, uh, of love and, and obedience and hope. It's a tri- I think Van German talks about that triad in, uh, in his book on the wall. What else? What other, what other ways is the New Testament relevant for you? <coughs> Or you been pretty quiet over here tonight. <laughs> what do you think? It says the New Testament is opposite for our instruction. Matter of fact, we complete our instruction. Exactly. So it makes it relevant because you can learn how to be useful in the kingdom of God and to God. Okay. Good. I have a roadmap to the future when we get into Galatians. A roadmap for the future, which provides you with what? An understanding of what's come, and more importantly, if you use that with the rest of the New Testament, how to prepare yourself. Okay, right. So, preparation, purpose, hope. Good. And? Yeah, they, for me, the most relevant thing is just knowing that God loves me. Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter 
How many times did you screw up? You know? <laughs> That's true. That's one of the big issues in the New Testament is, is God's love. Mm-hmm. And, and that He loved us while we were sinners. Okay. We didn't have to get good first. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm here for the purpose of others. Uh, I'm here not for myself. From my brother. Exactly. Right. Counting others more important than yourselves. What Jesus did. So there's a sense in which the New Testament provides us with an example of how to do that and motivation to do it. Okay, David? Well, I find the New Testament is a living book in the sense that the Holy Spirit bears with it, witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. And therefore, when I hear all these other voices and things that people bring in doubt, I'm not left feeling like, well, maybe it's just my mind, maybe I'm just dreaming. No, this is real. There's a sense, not only just of a feeling, but it goes deeper than that, of that assurance that this is life. Mm-hmm. Yes, good. Exactly. It is a, a source of life, the Word of God. I'm commanded to love my wife. Why don't you respond when you walk up to her and say, Sweetheart, I'm commanded to love you. So just bear with me here. The life, the public library, okay? This is a nice library, a nice small town. It's Purdue, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, and the book that's on the table, I'm just scanning over, and it's a little book, a little pink book, a little hard on it. And it's, the title of the book is Pornography for Women. And I thought, wow, this is a public library. Um... So I was I was looking at that and I thought, hmm. <laughs> 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 I, I either need to put, I either need to pick it up, throw it away, or I need to see what it is. So I pick it up and I carefully open, just opened it up. You know, it's not that big of a book, little book. It's just, and I thought, yeah, because typically, you know, we're using, you know, digital format. For, for, so we have, you know, arbiting on computers, so. But we have to build those there. <laughs> so so I, I, I open it up and I to the middle page, and, and, and the page is a picture of a very nice-looking, fully clothed young man, 
something looks a little bit like Joshua, standing there with a, with a skillet, a pan in his hand and a spoon in his other hand. He says, Sweetheart, I made a marinated sea bass with a chanterelle uh, mushroom sauce and some asparagus with hollandaise. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting because that's actually what I did make for my wife for dinner the other night. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I am the cook in my family. My wife refuses to go out to eat, not because Lafayette has the worst restaurants in the world, but because whenever we take, go out to eat, she says, why are we paying for this when yours is better? So... I then at that point began to leap through this little pornography for women book and one of the pictures was a guy vacuuming the floor and uh, in the living room you know I think he might have had his shirt off but the uh, one of the pictures was another guy uh, in front of the washing machine loading the washing machine saying, Sonny, uh, honey, as soon as I get this washed done, I'll take the kids off to the park so you can get some rest. <laughs> this was uh, the <laughs> So, let's just tell you something, guys. <laughs> I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it? I quit. He's out of the <laughs> All right, so anything else? Any other reasons why the New Testament is relevant to you? Um, it shows me that Jesus can empathize, can relate to everything that I go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, with that, the hope and knowing that Christ lives within me, that through him... I can have the strength to go through the trials and mm-hmm. tribulations and, mm-hmm. and even do it in the peace of God. Right. Yeah, and the scriptures tell us that, 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 that Jesus empathizes with our weakness. Mm-hmm. Everything that we went through, he went through. He knows about it. So, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. Without the New Testament, we wouldn't have that sense. Right. I'm going to come back here to the hard table, to the hard table, and uh, ask them the hard question. <laughs> come back to the hard table. The hard question then is it's pretty easy for us. I don't think I'm on this table at all. <laughs> the, uh, the, the hard question here then is I mean, we can all say this is why the New Testament is relevant to me. We're believers, we've been reading it most of our believing life. We read it and we're comforted by it. We see that it tells us about Jesus. It brings us into a relationship with him. Those things are pretty, I think they're pretty natural. The harder question then is, how does the New Testament become relevant for the people who have have missed it? Because that's, that's the missionary question, right? The missionary question is that Paul was answering, and that Luke was answering, and Matthew was answering, John was answering. The missionary question is, Jesus Christ is relevant for you, pagan Gentile who knows nothing about the Old Testament, who knows nothing about God and nothing about salvation, doesn't even know that you're stuck in a place where you'll never get out of without Jesus. Now you ask the question, you know, Dave, for example, what? How does it become relevant? Didn't you tell me you had you were like a PhD in something? <laughs> um, but the missionary question: How does the New Testament become relevant for the people who haven't come yet? 
Interpret his Scottish. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, well, I think we only see that. Just the land on the propositional truth. I mean, the fucking church man, God, Christ, faith, whatever the temple it is. Mm-hmm. You say to a person that you're lost, and that's like, or if you ask a person, do you feel lost? They say, that's like asking a bishop to feel lost. Yeah, of course not. So, does that not suggest yeah. that that will definitely take time and a wide context for the observe that? It will, and the reason we, one of the other reasons we know it is because if we can look at what the New Testament is, as we were talking about before, it took place over a process. It took 50 years to get this thing down. And another two or three hundred to get it disseminated in complete form. And another fifteen, what, another thousand beyond that to get it printed, enough copies of it for enough people to have it. So obviously God's been taking his time getting this to where it needs to go. Alright, so it's probably going to take some time for you to get it where it needs to go with other people as well. But I've heard someone um, say that there's there's no commandments in the New Testament letters to the churches to preach the gospel. To the church, but it didn't say to the church people who preached the gospel. And it is a letter to the church itself, but there are all these instructions about loving more and more, about uh, well, loving one another, really, basically, the, the issue after, after the after apostles came through and, and preached, and the people, they didn't have any testament. Exactly. Exactly. There is a sense in which the Holy Spirit had to carry this thing forward in the early church um, and sent the Word of God through the apostles to them. But yeah, you're right. They had to figure that out. Um, So, all of this to say, if you just look at this list here, we talk about why is it relevant. It's relevant in that it's what it does for us and it becomes relevant in the way the Holy Spirit works that out through us to the people around us so the purpose and function of the New Testament then and I've just written down a few things here um, to reveal God and his purpose and his plan for creation and community and can we just let me just show you a few places in scripture where I just didn't pull this out of the air okay so let to show you the New Testament is supporting what I'm saying here. First um, Peter chapter 1, blessed, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and fading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded, etc., etc., Okay, the salvation ready to be the last time. Now, it talks about testing. Jesus Christ, you've seen him, you love him, etc. But then, starting in verse 10, look at this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Right? Now there's many other passages in the New Testament that say similar things, but the idea here is that this gospel, this document, this revelation that you have sitting here was something that 
that was something God had purposed and planned from eternity past. See what he says here? They were inquiring carefully as to what God was up to. They knew something was going to happen. They knew someone was going to come and fix this mess. But they didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, or when, or who. They always were looking. And when you get, for example, the introduction to Luke, and you have these older people that are in the temple that, that are there. Um, uh, why can't I say their names? Anna and Simeon. And Anna and Simeon waiting in the temple, okay, knowing day by day by day, praying, knowing, anticipating somehow the Spirit of Christ had been in them to the place where they knew. Simeon says it had been promised to him that he would not die until he saw the Anointed One, until he saw the Messiah. It was God promised that to him. So they were the ones who were on the cusp of this transition. God had let them be alive and born and live long enough to say they saw it. They saw it happen. And then they died. You know, so that's what he's saying here. This has been going on, and, the, and what you have in the New Testament is a revelation of the purpose and plan of God for creation and community. Okay? I'll go over to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I just want to give you a few of these just to see how Scripture speaks here about these things. It says, the point of what we're now saying is this. We have such a high priest... One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, etc. But verse 5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying that you make everything according to this pattern. Okay, so he says, this is this whole reason of setting up the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament was as a precursor to what was going to happen. Okay, one, because this is what it looks like in heaven. Okay, two, this is who's going to come. Someone's going to come and fulfill all these things. But look what he goes on in verse, in verse 8, okay? He goes on in verse 8, and he begins citing then from Jeremiah. Now he picks up Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, and says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Right. So you see in the New Testament... Okay, this connection, this powerful connection here between what God said was going to happen. I will make a new covenant with them. They sinned, they don't care, they've dropped off the planet of relationship with me, but I am going to fix it. 
And I'm going to bring them to a, a new covenant. And it's going to be written on their hearts. Okay, he says in another place in Ezekiel, in the beginning of Jeremiah, that I'm going to take their heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. Several times in the Old Testament you have this idea, okay, that when Jesus came, he fulfilled a long-standing promise of God. That's what this New Testament is about, okay? It's relevant because it reveals that promise fulfillment, okay? Several other places you have, for example, it reveals the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit and how it is we go about living this life, Romans chapter 8. We don't even know how to pray unless the Holy Spirit tells us, all right? We cannot live out the law the way we're supposed to. Because we don't have the ability, unless the Holy Spirit provides it, the law of Christ. We don't know how to do anything that is with the fruit of the Spirit, except by the Spirit. Okay? The New Testament reveals this scope of salvation in the kingdom of God. And how to live that way. This is a passage here in Matthew 13. I was curious... Let me see if I remember what that is. All right, oh, I know why I just did this. In Matthew 13, you have all of these parables. Parable of sower, the purpose of parables. You have this parable of the weeds, the mustard, the leaven, the pearl, the hidden treasure, the net, new and old treasures. All of these parables that Luke or Matthew gathers together in this one place to reveal what Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God. Okay? Jesus comes and says, Up to now you've been living with God in a certain way, but there have been some limitations. Okay? Limitations because you weren't able to fulfill the requirements of God. God gave you the requirements of what it took to live with him, but you couldn't fulfill those requirements, so there were limitations to that covenant. All right? But let me tell you what God's vision is. The kingdom of God is a little bit of a different, uh, difficult um, concept to nail down because Jesus never actually tells us what the kingdom of God is. He tells us about the kingdom of God, or he tells us what the kingdom of God is like, but he never really actually writes it down. What is the kingdom of God? But interestingly, as you read through the parables, especially these parables of the kingdom here, and as you read through the way Jesus describes the kingdom of God in the four Gospels, you begin to see that the kingdom of God is Jesus' understanding of what God's vision was for everything that he had made and his relationship with that. And Jesus had a very clear vision of what that looked like. So clear that he could give all of these little pictures about what it looked like. About the sower, about weeds, using parables. But the one that I like, one of the ones I like the best, and this is one that actually John Piper really helped me see the power of here, was, is, is in 44, Matthew 13, 44 and 45. These two parables. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found and covered up, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now that doesn't tell us what the kingdom of God is, but what it does say is Jesus' vision of what God is doing. Jesus' vision of who God is and his purpose and his plan for what he has done and is doing is of such tremendous value and such tremendous importance that it would be like someone who found a treasure and sold everything because they knew that that was more valuable than everything they had. We can't imagine what that's like, really. We don't have that concept. We, we're beginning to get it as we live with the Spirit. Once in a while, as you live through your life, you get glimpses, once in a while, of the Spirit that, wow, that really is better. I don't know if I'm, you know, I'm approaching 50, so I'm not, you know, the, 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 uh, the senior person in the room here. But I know, at least in my world, that I'm beginning to feel that just a little bit. Some of you older folks probably, I bet if I asked you, you sit down quietly and begin to look and you, you're feeling it. Maybe you've been feeling it for a while, that this world is fading you feel that? I think the older you get, the more you get a sense of, yeah, yeah, this world really is fading. And that one is becoming brighter. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you get that, you give everything to get it. That's the kingdom of God. And the New Testament is all about that. It's all about seeing that vision out there that what God is up to is so much bigger and what the kingdom and what the, the things you can't see are so much larger and so much more beautiful and so much more valuable than the little junk that you're doing here. That this life is really designed to be preparation for that. And anything else is futile. That's the New Testament. It's bigger and better and more beautiful out there up there, around there, wherever that is, that's about God, than anything you can see here, touch, feel, have, earn. That's the New Testament. It reveals the purpose of then the one who wants us to not get that. Because there's one around who's real, who does not want you to get that. You know, this is the thing. C.S. Lewis made this point about... Um, the enemy, the screw tape letters, I think, one of them. You can either fall off a horse on either side, you know, with Christ to say. You can either ignore him completely and pretend like he doesn't exist at all, and they'll just do whatever he wants in your life and goof you all around and you won't even know what happened because you're ignoring him. Or you can focus all your time and energy on trying to defeat him yourself, you know, and always be scared or aware or worried that he's doing something and he's, you know, the, 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 the uh, spirit under the bush or whatever. And you don't want to fall off the, the horse on either side there. There's a sense in which Jesus is clear. The enemy is real and he hates you and he wants to destroy you and if he can he'll sift you like wheat and he'll destroy your life, and he'll make you look bad, and he'll make everyone look bad around you. And if he can destroy pastors, he'll do that first, because when he destroys pastors, he destroys churches. 
When he destroys churches, he destroys the testimony of Jesus in cult communities, and that's what he wants to do. And he's up to that all the time. Jesus warns us. Paul warns us. Peter warns us. Revelation tells us that. But at the same time, there's a sense in which Jesus has ultimate, absolute sovereignty over the enemy. He doesn't do anything without permission. And you can resist him, and he will flee from you. And you can live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And you do not have to succumb to the power of the roaring lion. You can put on the armor of God. So, he's real and powerful and wants to eat your lunch and your dinner. But you don't have to let him because you are in Jesus. Okay? That's the balance of the New Testament on the enemy. But he's and then, lastly, this idea that the New Testament reveals an ultimate hope. <coughs> now, let me ask you, as we, before we take off here in a couple of minutes, as I look at the New Testament, and as I look at its relevance, you know, I, in the middle of the night, <laughs> you know, you wake up and you can't sleep, and, and one of these four questions is, is running through your head, you know, especially if you're a college student. I notice this happens all the time with them, but... but um, there's these, there's these ultimate questions that we ask, especially when we don't really understand what the next thing is. And we ask questions like, who am I? You know, a question of identity. Really, who am I? I'm 50 years old and I've done a few things in my life, but where am I going? Why am I here? What, you know, and if you're, you've, you're retired and you want, well, did that really matter? Or if you're a college student and you're saying, what am I supposed to do with myself? And you ask this question, who am I and why am I here? And where am I going? I mean, how many college students do I counsel or talk to or spend time with? And there's this constant question of, well, I'm going to get this degree, but I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do with it. Where am I going? Where, what am I supposed to do? What does God want me to do? And this question, then, this question of relationship, really when it gets right down to it, does anybody really love me? And those are the questions that your heart asks as all the time, and we spend a lot of energy and time either covering up the fact that we have those questions or trying to figure out the answers to them. And Jesus gives us the answer in John 14. It's the, it's the section that Bud was quoting earlier. And I coined this term, I mean, he uses the word love, and I guess maybe what I try to do is say, when he uses the word love in this passage, what does he mean based on the context? And I, I just kind of coined this phrase, sacrificial intimacy. Because I believe that this idea of sacrificial intimacy is the answer to these, these ultimate questions. A right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. So we could read through the passage and I won't take the time to read and prove all these points from the passage. But essentially, what we're looking for here is a fully open relationship bond that is created and sustained by an utter fixation on the satisfaction of the other person. Jesus says, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And I'll ask the Father to give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. We know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So I think this, 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 this issue of love, sacrificial intimacy, is the distilled essence of Christianity. And so, Jesus, in this passage, if you were to take it apart and look at the verses, and you can do this. He says, give yourself away, and I'll give myself to you. And submit your heart to me, and I will give you my spirit. Release your fear, and I will give you my peace. That's the, that's the relevance of the New Testament, because it answers those ultimate heart questions. For you and for the ones who haven't come yet, give yourself away and submit yourself to Jesus and release your fear, and he will give himself to you and he will give you his spirit and he will give you his peace, and that's the ultimate promise that the New Testament gives us, is a friendship with God through Jesus. Questions, comments, issues, We'll come back tomorrow. And if you have peace in your life, you can have peace in the world. Everybody in the world. Are you going to do the Are you moving the table? No, I'm not moving the table. Okay. Can I pray for us? Before we go. Father, as we read your word, we are overwhelmed by your, your passionate mercy toward us. We know our own hearts. We know, at least at some level, how desperately wicked and needy we are. And that you have sacrificed your son for us. And we're so grateful for that. Will you... Do you move in our hearts now, Lord, as we contemplate the things we've talked about tonight, what it means to live with you, what it means to, to live with Jesus, what it means to give ourselves away and, and submit our hearts and to release our fear. <coughs> Allow your spirit to move in us powerfully, Lord. And draw us into your presence in a way that we can experience what you want us to in these days. Keep us safe as we go and come. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.